Good morning, church. It is so good to see everyone back and smiling and see your faces. What a joy. Again, I invite you to open your Bibles. I am Pastor Jay. It's my privilege this morning to exposit Holy Scripture. We're in the New Testament in one of Paul's letters, the first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 10. If you're newer or if you're one of our regulars, just a reminder, every week we open God's book for a reason. We let the Lord speak through His infallible Word because these are His inspired words. The Bible is the only inspired book that came from God. There is no other. Its words are infallible and authoritative and life-giving because it is God-breathed, a word used only one time in the New Testament. All other religious books on our planet are forgeries of demons and men. The Bible alone is the inerrant Word of God, every word true, every word pure, and every word without error. It's all contained in 66 books, 39 in the Old Testament, and 27 in our New Testament in English. No one is to take away from what is in God's Word, and no one is to add what is in God's Word, or the Bible says the plagues will be added unto them. So, whenever we open this book, it is our responsibility, if we know Christ, to interpret it accurately, to welcome what is written, to read it prayerfully, study it carefully, meditate on it diligently, listen to it authoritatively, submit to its promises, trust in what it promises, and trust in its claims and obey everything it commands. And that is why we put the Bible at the center of everything we do in our church. That is why the gospel is center as we seek to follow and connect and make disciples. So just a brief reminder of what it is we're doing. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 this morning. We are currently in a series in this letter called Wise Words for a Hurting Church. And a hurting church is a little bit of an understatement for the church in southern Greece here in Corinth. This church was a train wreck, truly. It wasn't very old, less than about five years old, as Paul's writing these letters from Ephesus across the Aegean Sea. He had helped start this church. He helped plant this church. This church was his baby. And this church has gone off the rails, big time. They were involved with spiritual abuse of each other. They were involved in abusing the Lord's Supper. They were involved in blatant sexual sin. There was infighting and factions, and it was a mess. And this is a section this morning, this is a pretty blunt section, you should just be aware of that, in which the Apostle Paul is going to talk about the issue of obedience, and specifically why obedience is a big deal to God. And when we say that, let me qualify it. We're talking about the obedience of God's people, those who claim to be followers of Christ and are truly born again and have the Holy Spirit in them. They are in union with Christ and they are, in fact, genuine Christians. With that qualifier, God says, those people and their obedience or lack of is a big deal to Him. Let me, let me remind us why, according to the Bible. A couple of these will be emphasized in today's text, one in particular. But here's why obedience is such a big deal in the Bible. Number one, the way God's people behave is a direct reflection on God. 
and either advances or hinders his reputation among other people. God's foremost passion is for his own glory. That's very clear in the Bible. Sometimes people ask, who's God love more, himself or people? The answer very clear biblically is himself. God's foremost passion is for his glory. He loves his people. He loves his elect. He loves his people. But his foremost passion is for his glory and how his people are behaving directly advances or hinders his reputation on our planet. That's one reason why obedience is such a big deal. Paul does not address that specifically. A second reason is obedience is the evidence that we really know Christ. A pattern of ongoing obedience is the evidence. Conviction of sin and repentance is the evidence. We're not saved by good works, but good works inevitably flow if we're saved. Third reason why obedience is a big deal, it helps us avoid God's discipline. That's the focus of today's text. And a fourth reason is that there is a direct relationship between obedience and joy. Much of Western evangelicalism is joy-starved. And one of the reasons so many people who profess to know Jesus are sitting out in churches starved of joy is they're not obedient. And so with that this morning, we're going to dive into a very important section. Verses 1 to 22, we're going to see warnings about disobedience and then reminders, some very practical, encouraging reminders, how to stand firm. I love Paul. He always moves from the theological to the practical. And the practical is usually very encouraging and very helpful. This section is no different. First of all, warnings about disobedience. Let me back up for just a minute. There are three good rules for education and instruction. Review, review, review. (laughs) So let me just give a brief recap Chapters 8, 9, and 10 are a section. Remember, in the original Greek, there were not chapters. Those were not added to well after a thousand years after the New Testament was written. So what we call chapters 8, 9, and 10 were one section. In chapters 8 and 9, what's going on? Paul is confronting the Christians here, or the church, some Christians, some not, but he's confronting them for a very specific thing, for their pride, their factions, their disagreements that are toxic, and simply for their infighting. And especially their pride and their arrogance. They had been arguing something like this. We're free in Christ. We have our freedoms and our liberties. I want my rights. I can do whatever I want. That that was their chant. No matter who, who it hurts or who it confuses or who it hinders. If the Bible doesn't explicitly forbid something, then I'm free to do it whenever I want, anytime I want. It doesn't matter if it hurts my witness or hurts a weaker brother in Christ. I can do what I want to do when I want to do it. Leave me alone. That was their attitude. Needless to say, Paul was pretty blunt in his rebuke of this kind of an attitude. It led to pride. It led to self-righteousness. It led to selfishness and disobedience. That's chapters 8 and 9. That brings us to chapter 10. Brings it, young people, you with me this morning? Really want you to hear this. That brings us to chapter 10. In chapter 10, we're going to move now from seeing how a Christian's disobedience affects others to seeing how a Christian's disobedience affects themselves. That's the difference here. Chapters 8 and 9 focus on how a Christian's disobedience affects others. Chapter 10 now turns to how it affects us if we know Christ. And here Paul issues his two warnings. 
about disobedience. Warning number one. It's in verses five to seven. And that is this. Past spiritual privilege or say a past Christian heritage is no guarantee of finishing well. That's my wording, but that's the warning given in verses 5 to 7. Past spiritual privilege is no guarantee of finishing well. Now, first of all, Paul begins by reminding the true Christians at Corinth of their incredible spiritual heritage and the privileges afforded to ancient Israel. Look at verses 1 to 4. I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors, I'll come back to that in a minute, were all under the cloud and they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Before I go to verses 5 to 7, I want you to notice a couple things. Number one, verse 1 is very interesting. Who's he writing to? He is writing largely to a church filled with Gentiles that are Greek. There may have been some Messianic Jews here, but for the most part, these are Greek believers. They're Gentiles. They're not Jews. And yet Paul calls them and their ancestors, and he says ancient Israel is their ancestors. That's an interesting statement for people who are not Jewish. What's it mean? It's indicating that those who are truly saved are part of spiritual Israel. That's what it's saying. That they're part of God's adopted family. In other words, and this applies to us today, if you know Jesus, if you are born again, if you are saved, Israel's history is your history. Israel's history is my history. Their heritage is my heritage. How else could Paul say to a congregation that's largely Gentile, hey, those are our ancestors. It's very clear what he's doing. He's identifying ancient Israel and us, non-Jews for the most part, as part of the same adopted family. That's quite a a declaration. And then in verses 3 and 4, notice a couple other things. He mentions spiritual food. That's probably the manna that God provided in the Old Testament when he promised to take care of them. Man is simply two Hebrew words put together, you may know, and it means, basically it means, what is this? That's what it means. So every morning God provided for years, for decades, this stuff that came out of the sky and landed. We're told it looked kind of like crusty white flakes on the ground, and that's how he fed the people. They didn't know what to call it. They weren't sure what this stuff was. And so, literally, they just called it, what is it? And so every morning they had, what is it for breakfast? And every afternoon they had, what is it for lunch? And every night they had, what is it for supper? And as you may know, some of you don't, but some of you know that the people got sick of eating, what is it? And they would complain and murmur. That's the manna he provided. That's referenced here, the bread that he gave. It also mentions that they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. It's interesting, that rock appears at the beginning of their wilderness wanderings and at the end, both, beginning and end. Very interesting. Now, the Jews, you may not know this, and the rabbis had a popular legend 
that the actual rock that Moses hit, the story is, the backstory here is of Numbers 20 when Moses was told, look it, speak to this rock, it will provide water for the people in their desert wanderings. And Moses got very angry at the people and he was in a moment of very severe frustration. Instead of speaking to the rock, he whacked it with his rod, his stick. And the rock gave water, but God said, speak to it. He didn't speak to it. And there's discipline. We'll come back to that in a minute. But there is a rabbinic tradition, a, a tradition in ancient Judaism, that the rock then followed the people through the wilderness, giving them water. Paul may, and, and Paul may be connecting the rock to Christ's presence with his people. That may be what he's referring to here. It's important to remember something that we forget, and that is that Jesus was very clear in the Bible, in the Gospels, that the Old Testament pointed to him in many, many ways that we don't even see. For example, Luke 24, 27, then Jesus took them through the writings of Moses. He's walking with these two dudes after his resurrection on a small rural road between Jerusalem and what we call today Tel Aviv. It's a little village outside of Jerusalem called Emmaus. And he's walking along with these guys. And it says he took them through the writings of Moses and the prophets, showing them how the scriptures pointed to him. And so we know there's many glimpses of Jesus in the Old Testament. And this may be indeed just one of those glimpses because Paul specifically says that rock was Christ and it was the rock that accompanied them. And that is an ancient Jewish tradition and Paul probably is referring to that. Now at this point, in verse, of the point of verses 1 to 4 is to recount Israel had a great heritage. You may come from a heritage. Some of you do, some of you don't. You may come from a Christian home. Some of you do, some of you don't. Paul's point is, Israel was given a great spiritual heritage and privileges which automatically transferred to the believers at Corinth. Like, like what? Like election unto salvation. God says, I chose my people. It's very clear in the Bible, as God looks on a sinful planet, He does not choose everyone. But he puts his favor. See, Americans say, why doesn't he choose everybody? Well, when you understand the picture of depravity in the Bible, that's not the question. The biblical question is, when God looks at a planet of rebellious, sinful people, the real question is, why does he choose anyone? And yet in his mercy and in his grace, he does. That's one of the blessings. And then he justifies his people, and then he adopts them into a family, and then he puts them in union with Christ, and then he puts his Holy Spirit in them. Those are the blessings he is talking about as he looks back to Israel and applies them to people here. Unfortunately, Israel wasn't the most obedient child in the wilderness or anywhere else for that matter. They kept plunging headlong into sin and rebellion and cycles of disobedience and evil on a regular basis. That brings us to verses 5 to 7. That brings us to this first warning. The first warning being, understand... Just because you've had spiritual privilege or spiritual heritage or you went on a mission trip or you went to Bible camp or VBS and you had a great experience doesn't mean it's going to end well. Look at verses 5 to 7. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things occurred as examples to us, keep us 
from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. The, they got up to indulge. This is a reference to sexual sin and debauchery. The point is that past spiritual privilege, which verses 1 and 4 are all about, but then verse 5 and 7 remind us past spiritual privilege doesn't necessarily mean we will end well, meaning we will end life well or we will end our sin well. It's for this reason Jesus issued this warning in Luke, 20, in Luke 12 verse 48. He said, when someone has been given much, much will be required. In return, when someone has been entrusted with much, much more will be demanded from them. In other words, spiritual privilege not only doesn't ensure we will end well, it actually heightens our accountability. We come from a Christian home. If we've had the experience of going on a mission trip and being profoundly impacted, if we've gone to Bible camp or been involved in VBS or some other way, we had an unusual, not only spiritual heritage, but some spiritual experiences. It not only is not a guarantee we will not end well, it also heightens our accountability to God. That's his point here. So warning number one, very clearly, spiritual privilege is no guarantee of finishing well. What's the second warning? Well, the second warning is given in verses 8 to 11. We're just simply following the text here. Second warning is this, God disciplines His people, meaning those who are true followers of Christ, young and old alike. He disciplines His people for disobedience. We're told that in the book of Hebrews. But Paul's point here is sometimes it's severe. And the key is you never know. God's utter unpredictability when it comes to disciplining disobedience. We're not talking about punishing in the sense of eternal judgment, but we are talking about discipline. And his point is, he disciplines his people for disobedience, sometimes severely. Verses 8 to 11. We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. In one day, 23,000 of them died. That's severe. We should not test Christ as some of them did and were killed by snakes. And do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. Who sent the snakes? God did. Who sent the destroying angel? God did. You say, I, I didn't think God, I thought God was all loving. Well, God is loving. And one of the ways He loves is discipline. And sometimes that even involves killing those in disobedience. You may say, wow, that's, that's, well, I'm just telling you what the text says. My job isn't to write this stuff. I'm just trying to tell you faithfully what the text says here. 23,000 people is a lot of people. So, second warning. God disciplines his people for disobedience. That's very clear. And sometimes it's very severe. That's also clear. Now, notice twice. It says, all that happened as an example to us. So these are put in there as warnings to us. That's why I'm asking young people today, let hear this. All of us need to hear this. But especially if we're younger, 
We need to hear this because of how much potential life we have ahead of us. Look at verse 6 and 11. It says, two times all that stuff happened to warn us. Don't do that. Sometimes if you're a, a, a younger sibling, if you have a bit of a, a, a wisdom about you, you look at what happens when your older siblings disobey and the hammer falls and you say to yourself, self, that wouldn't be a good idea to do that. That's kind of his point here. Look at your ancestors. Look at your older siblings. Look what happened to them. Don't do it. Don't test God. Because sometimes God's very unpredictable and does pretty severe stuff in response. Now, again, in the American church, we don't like, we like, we, you know, let's talk about grace and mercy. Well, God is full of grace and mercy. In fact, I find more examples of God's grace and mercy in the Old Testament than I do the New. Having said that, there are also many examples where God's very unpredictable from our perspective as to how he's going to respond to disobedience. But two examples come to mind when he says, verse 6, now these things occurred, what are these things? These disobedience things. As examples to us to keep from setting our hearts on evil. Well, he says the same thing in verse 11. These things, he's referring again here to the sexual immorality, the orgies, and God killing people with snakes and smiting them dead. A lot of smiting and smoting going on here. These things happened. Why? As examples and are written down as warnings for us. That's for me, for you, if you know Christ. So twice, Paul says, look at what happened in the old days. Be forewarned. Take obedience seriously if you know Christ. So I was working on this week, and I thought, well, if you're supposed to look back at examples, two of the guys that jump out the most are two of the most famous Moses, Big Mo, and King David. Let me just briefly unpack how their disobedience at one key point in each of their lives led to very severe discipline by God. Moses, Deuteronomy 32, Moses climbs up on Mount Nebo. Actually, God takes Moses up to Mount Nebo. Mount Nebo is right above the Dead Sea. I actually should have had a photograph this morning because I got a picture of Becky and I standing right in front of the Dead Sea, and Mount Nebo is right behind us. It's, in, it's right on the border of Jordan. When you stand on Mount Nebo, you can look almost all the way across Israel. Moses stood up there. God showed him the promised land. Moses had been leading the people for 40 years to that place. And yet God took him up on Mount Nebo that day and said, You're not going in. After all the years of leading the people, but you're not going in. God says, you will not enter it, Deuteronomy 32. The reason is given in verse 51, Deuteronomy 32. Here it is. You're not going in, Moses, because you failed to demonstrate my holiness at the waters of Kadesh. You might say, whoa, what was that? That didn't sound all that bad. Again, we already referred to this in Numbers 20. Moses was told to speak to a rock to get water. He got very angry, and he hit the rock instead. You may say, well, gosh, I've done that in traffic. You know, I've hit the horn. I've said things I shouldn't have, waved appendages I shouldn't have, done things I shouldn't have, said things I shouldn't have. 
got mad at home, I've hit a wall, or I've hit this, or I've done that. Well, again, God's response is not always predictable from our perspective, but in Numbers 20, at Kadesh, God said that was egregious enough that it prohibited Moses from going in to the promised land. From our perspective, that's a pretty severe punishment after leading the people for 40 years towards the promised land. Let me give you an example from King David. Since twice, Paul says, well, look back at examples. Here's another one. David's called a man after God's own heart in 1 Samuel 13. He's at the peak of his career when you come to 2 Samuel. The peak of his career. He's a musician. He's a warrior. He's a poet. He's a philosopher. And he's a politician. He's also a stud, we're told. I mean, like, he had it all. Had, and we're never, we're never more vulnerable than when we have it all, than when we have it all, when everything's going right. At the height of all of this, David did the unthinkable. He seduced another man's wife, committed adultery. She ended up getting pregnant, and then he arranged to have her husband killed. Evil upon evil. Nonetheless, he kept going on. He was confronted by a prophet. And in Psalm 51, which is why I had that read this morning, we have one of the most heartfelt, I think, authentic transcripts of repentance you can find anywhere in the Bible. Psalm 51. Heartfelt. Nevertheless, in 2 Samuel 12, 13, even though God is clear He is going to forgive David, the text says something haunting in chapter 12, verse 14. 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 14. It says this, Yahweh struck the child. Yahweh struck the child the child of David and Bathsheba. That is severe. That is severe. Some English translations sort of soften the text a bit. The child died. Well, it did die. He did die, but it's very clear in the Hebrew, it's very explicit. Yahweh killed the child as part of the discipline for what David had done. And then even after that, Chuck Swindoll does a great job of tracing the downward trajectory of David's ministry after this happened. Even though he repented, David commits this egregious series of sins. He's confronted, and to his credit, he, he, he comes clean and he humbles himself. And you got that Psalm 51, which is this, this heartfelt pouring out of his sin and contrition. God forgives him completely. There's no, there's no doubt God has forgiven him. But nonetheless, God disciplines him. Sometimes we like to think, I thought God forgives and forgets. Well, number one, God doesn't literally forget. He's God. He's omnipotent and omniscient. Means he to say God forgets means he doesn't hold his, our sin against us anymore in the sense of eternal damnation. But there's still consequences. And David had to face those consequences. His kingdom was taken away from him. His son Absalom betrayed him. He gets his kingdom back for a short season. But everything begins, from that point on, everything starts going downhill in his life. 
And he dies a bitter old man. His last rambling diatribe to his son Solomon is the diatribe of a bitter old man. Make sure you get my enemies. Make sure you bring blood down on their heads. You should read his closing words. Not befitting of someone that should be blessing on their deathbed and instead they're cursing and calling down God's judgment. Two lessons emerge. Paul says, look at these things. They are examples. So we look at Moses. He's forbidden to go in the promised land because he hit a rock instead of speaking. Look at David. David gets a woman pregnant and seduces her and has her husband killed and God kills his baby as discipline and takes his kingdom away and he's betrayed and everything kind of goes off the rails after that. Two lessons emerge as you look at Moses and as you look at David. Let us consider these lessons carefully. Number one, don't ever think you have a free pass to sin just because you're a Christian. Oh yeah, I know how it goes because I've done the same thing. Oh, I'm forgiven in Christ so God will forgive this. That is one of the most deadly things you can speak to yourself. Why? Because you never know how God is going to respond to your sin. From our perspective, he's utterly unpredictable. Utterly unpredictable. Don't ever think to yourself, it's not a big deal if I play around with pornography, sleep with my girlfriend or have sex with my boyfriend. It's really not a big deal if I'm lying to my parents and going around behind their back. It's really not a big deal if I verbally abuse my spouse or cheat in my marriage and break my marriage covenants. It's not a big deal if I go ahead and get divorced from my spouse. not a big deal if I'm greedy or steal or refuse to forgive somebody and just get bitter. God will understand. He's full of grace and mercy and he goes easy. He is full of grace and mercy. And sometimes he does go easy. But sometimes he doesn't. That's the point here. That's the first lesson. Don't ever think you have a free pass to sin and that God's reaction is predictable. Second lesson, when you look at Moses and you look at David, is something that Bible-believing Christians don't like to think about. And it is this. The consequences of forgiven sin can be very painful. The consequences of forgiven sin can be very painful. Even sins we've committed and forgotten about and are blind to can be very painful. And David and Moses stand as prime examples. Just because you're forgiven doesn't mean there are not consequences. There are many in prisons who committed egregious crimes, who found repentance in Christ, they still have to serve their time. Still have to serve their time. Just because I come to Christ or just because I'm a Christian doesn't automatically mean there's not consequences to my sin. A major failure, ladies and gentlemen, young people of modern day evangelicalism is a failure to take the holiness of God seriously. We like a little bit of it in the pulpit. We like a little bit of it in our teaching that those who are God's people are called to be separate and holy. 1 Peter 1.16, the scripture says, you are to be holy because I'm holy. 
it's a quote from Leviticus. Or Hebrews 12, 14, make every effort to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Uh, some of you know the name Rich Stearns. A lot of you don't, but some of you do. He's a past direct, he was the president for about 20 years of World Vision, the largest relief agency in the world. And he wrote a book several years ago called The Hole in Our Gospel. And in that, he says, you know what? Most Christians ask the wrong question. Most American Christians, let's just pick on ourselves, ask the wrong question. We ask, well, what can I expect from God? Chuck Colson used to ask a very similar question. He said a lot of people ask, you know, they come to the, they come to the Bible wanting to know what's in it for them. And Chuck Colson and Rich Stearns both remind us that's the wrong question. The biblical question is, what does God expect from me if I'm going to be his follower? Here's a paragraph from Hole in Our Gospel, the way Rich Stearns sums this up. It's pretty punchy. What does God expect of us? It's a very simple question, really. Jesus had a lot to say about it. He spoke at length about God's expectations, our values, and how we should live in the world. What God is asking for is really very simple. What is it? It's much more than church attendance. It's more than just praying. He's asking for more than just belief or self-denial. God asks us for everything, if we know Him. That's why Jesus said count the cost, by the way. That's why Jesus chased some people away who came to Him, which is kind of odd, you'd think. For a preacher to actually chase people away, and Jesus said, no, I want, you need to count the cost. God asks us for everything. He requires a total life commitment from those who would be his followers. Close quote. So those are the two warnings this morning. Just because we have spiritual privilege doesn't mean we're going to end well. And secondly, God disciplines his people for disobedience. And sometimes it's very unpredictable from our perspective and can be very severe. There are consequences to forgiven sin. And that leads now, Paul, to his very practical side here of how to stand firm. Here, these reminders from verses 12 to 22 are very practical and very encouraging. So they are, number one, beware of pride and self-righteousness as you battle sin, verse 12. So if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. We've changed this a little bit. There's a famous saying, well-known saying, what goes before the fall? Pride. That's exactly what he's saying. Be very careful. It's very easy to become self-righteous. It is one of the easiest sins to be blind to in the Christian life. Some of us are sitting here this morning and we are self-righteous and we don't even see it. We don't even see it. Secondly, look for a way of escape. Verse 13. First, beware of pride, verse 12. Next, verse 13, look for a way of escape. I love this verse. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you are able, but He will also provide a way so that you can escape or endure it. God is always willing to help his people to cry out to him. Now, that doesn't mean that killing sin is easy. It's not. 
killing sin is hard work. It's very clear in Romans. It's very, very hard work. Killing sin is not easy. Third, verse 14. First, beware of pride. Second, look for a way of escape. Verse 13. Thirdly, verse 14, flee. He actually uses that word. F-L-E-E. Flee. Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. Flee from sin. The model here is Joseph in the Old Testament. He's a servant, slave, in the home of a wealthy Egyptian named Potiphar. Potiphar's wife is a babe, and she's making the moves. She's trying to take him to bed. And Joseph literally flees. He runs away from it wisely. That's, that's the picture here. Beware of pride, verse 12. Look for a way of escape, verse 13. Flee, verse 14. Verse 18, consider. And he uses a word. In other words, remember these examples. Consider the people of Israel. This is the third time he has told us to consider or look back to the examples of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifice participate in the altar? Do I mean that the food sacrificed to an idol is anything or an idol is anything? No. But the sacrifices of pagans, and let me add, which are done very sincerely, are actually offered to demons, not to God. So consider those examples and beware and learn. And then the last one. So we got beware of pride, look for a way of escape, flee, consider. And then lastly, verses 20 to 22, the summons to be holy and to be separate. Verses 20 to 22, no, but the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. I mean, it's very binary in the kingdom of God. We live in a culture right now where we hate talking about binaries. Well, God's very binary. It's right and wrong. There's black and white. There's, tr- there's truth and error. There's... That, that's it. And God sees things very black and white. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of the demons. You cannot have part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. Are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we stronger than He is? So the Bible says, young people, the Bible says you can't serve God and the devil. If you're lying to your mom and dad, if you're sneaking around behind their back, if you're not tithing, if you're sleeping with your girlfriend or your boyfriend, if you're cheating in school, if you're dabbling and messing around with pornography, the Bible says you need to repent. And if you don't care about whether you repent or not, then there's great doubt whether you really know Christ. And by the way, your sin will catch up with you. What happens when someone is saved is new desires begin to emerge and new attitudes and new behaviors start to crop up. And it shows up when someone is born again, Paul says they're a new creation, which means this, things start looking differently, not overnight immediately, but things start changing. How someone behaves sexually begins to change. How they begin to think, how they use the internet, how they use money, how they choose to forgive, how they treat their spouse, how they speak to their spouse. All of that, whether they make restitution to people they've wronged, all of that begins to change or it's just a show. A lot of people sit in churches and pretend and come to church and listen. And in the meantime, they're committing adultery and violating their vows and cheating God on money and they're lying on their taxes. It's all a big show. 
You may be one of those this morning. Your sin will find you out. And this passage is a very strong warning to that end. It means the message of the cross is not about finding ourselves, it's about denying ourselves and honoring God with our bodies. The message of the cross is not about improving our social standing, getting richer, improving our self-esteem. The message of the cross is what Jesus calls us to in the self-denial life, and it's a life of self-sacrifice and pursuing holiness. What's our summons? Here it is. Twofold this morning. Because this is, this is a blunt passage. And it's directed at clergy and laity. It's directed at all of us. So two summons. Number one, do you know Christ? And is your salvation, if you have claims to, genuine? People sit in church every week who think they're on their way to heaven and they're not. They're on their way to hell. The reason is because they think going to church or believing in God is going to somehow get them into heaven. Even if they're living backstage lives of corruption and perversion and betrayal and evil. The gospel is if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. And the evidence is your life will begin to change from the inside out. Are you genuinely born again? Second and final summons. The gospel is clear. Hear this. We are not saved by good works. But good works inevitably flow from genuine salvation. And under the new covenant, what's the new covenant? After Christ came, we have a new covenant, it's called a New Testament. Under the New Testament, under the new covenant, God says, he said it in the Old Testament, I want to bless my people, then it was more physical blessing. It still can be some of that today. But under the new covenant, God says, I want to bless my people if they will obey me and seek me. And by the way, that's one reason why the prosperity gospel promises too little to people, not too much. Prosperity gospel says every Christian should be wealthy and healthy and abundance and flowing all the time. That promise is actually too little to people. Why do I say that? Prosperity preachers say, believe in Jesus and you'll be rich. You'll have your beamer, you'll have your mega house, you'll have your mega vacation home, you'll have it, you'll have it, you'll have it, you'll have it. Well, that actually promises too little to people. Why? Number one, it's sheer nonsense and it's unbiblical. But the reason it promises too little is Jesus promises a lot more to his people. He promises infinitely more. He says, here's what I'll give you. When you become a believer and my Holy Spirit is in you and you're one with Christ, you will have joy in the midst of life's deepest sorrows. You will have peace in turmoil that you can't imagine ahead of time. You will know the presence of God walking through the valley of grief. You will have the presence and power of the Holy Spirit inside you no matter what you're facing. That's infinitely more than the prosperity gospel could ever promise. That is why the prosperity gospel promises way too little. Here's how Jesus put it. John 16, 33. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. That's an understatement. Take heart. Why? I have overcome the world. That is what's promised to every true follower of Jesus. Lord, as we're ready to sing, be thou my vision. That's our prayer. You would be our vision.
And we pray for those who are not saved. That today might be the day, this week might be the week, you open their blinded eyes and bring them to the cross. In Jesus' name, amen.